Welcome to the Need to Know podcast from the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. I'm your host, Aaron Jones, bringing you the best nonpartisan information that you need to know. I recently picked up a book called Deadly Companions, How Microbes Have Shaped Our History. It's a fascinating account of how pandemics, both bacterial, viral, how they've shaped us, how they've changed us, how they've moved events in human history. The author of that book is joining me today on the Need to Know podcast, Professor Dorothy Crawford, who is an emeritus professor at the University of Edinburgh. Thank you so much for joining us for this discussion. I'm pleased to be here. Thank you very much for asking me. One thing that I loved about your book is that it really provided this historical context to pandemics. Pandemics are something that the human race has had to deal with since really the beginning of the human race. And so we live in a generation where we have never had to deal with a pandemic that has really shaped and changed how we think and how we act day to day. So go back in time and and tell us a little bit about how these pandemics have really shaped us and changed our history. Well, I just want to pick you up on that because they haven't been with us since the beginning of time. Because before we developed agriculture, when when the hu- human race were hunter-gatherers, they really, as far as infectious diseases were concerned, didn't have much problems because they were moving on all the time. They were small bands of people, you know, and, and they weren't in close contact with animals uh, apart from killing and eating them. They didn't have epidemics or pandemics. And, and these really started about 10,000 years ago when... Um, people settled down into an agricultural style uh, of living and uh, lived closer together and in larger groups and um, as as and also in close contact with animals so it just turned out that in uh, the old world uh, the animals that they domesticated were carrying viruses which would actually infect humans so every now and then a a virus or or a, a microbe would jump to humans cause a small outbreak and then probably go away because there was no one else to pass it to. But uh, as the groups got bigger and you know uh, towns developed and, and that, then these microbes found that they could uh, move from one group to another and um, e- eventually sustain themselves within the human race and not have to be you know, to jump from the animal every time. So, for example, smallpox, which was one of the worst uh, infections before vaccination came in jumped originally from from camels, we think. Um, The DNA tells us that, that it's most commonly related to camel pox. And uh, so originally it would have jumped, caused an outbreak, gone away, jumped again, caused another outbreak. And and eventually when there were enough people living in close contact, um, the virus found that it could actually circulate continuously in the human population. And it then began to diverge from the camel virus. And there's some some work being done on measles, actually, which shows that you need a population of about 500,000 in living in close contact in order for these uh, microbes to be able to sustain themselves continuously. So that means that enough children are born in order to keep who who are not immune to to the virus in order to keep the thing circulating. And of course, as trade links got more uh, widespread and towns and cities grew up 
these so-called crowd diseases just got worse and worse. So I'm talking about smallpox, measles, whooping cough, the flu, uh, all, and all the other ones that we call childhood diseases or crowd diseases. And uh, to be honest, it, it really wasn't until, um, first of all, the invention of vaccines by Edward Jenner, and that was in the late 18th century. Um, and uh, after that, the um, discovery of antibiotics, th that anything really changed very much. But, but those two incidents together uh, mean that now the situation has completely changed. And as you say, it, we have to look back 100 years to the Spanish flu outbreak or, or pandemic to find something that is really in any way equivalent to what we're coping with now. So one of the things that I noticed in your book, you talked about the SARS outbreak of the early 2000s. You really set up the book uh, starting out with the introduction to talk about how this really transmitted uh, starting in Asia. And then towards the end of your book, you talk about that you really thought that the next uh, pandemic could come from a SARS type virus. And it turns out you were right on that. Has this pandemic played out the way that you thought that a, the next big pandemic would play out? Well, uh, let me start at the beginning. Um, I used SARS in the introduction of Deadly Companions, mostly because um, I was starting to write the book when the SARS pandemic came along. And uh, it, it was from the point of view of a pandemic, ideal really for my introduction, because it was... Um, it was small, it didn't last very long, and it was successfully sort of conquered. So it was topical, also it was in people's minds, I think, and we knew all the details about it. So in that way, it doesn't really compare at all with what we're suffering from at the moment. But, um, you know, it, it was a nice example to use because it came from an animal in a wet market. It caused a local outbreak in Foshan, and then... It was one individual, one doctor, who had been looking after the, the patients in Foshan who travelled to Hong Kong for a wedding. And when he got there, he stayed one night in the Metropole Hotel and then felt sick and went into hospital. And from that one night in the hotel where other people were staying who were then taking international flights the next day, that, that developed into a pandemic. But having said that, it spread to Hong Kong, Canada, Singapore, Vietnam and the U.S., and it caused um, epidemics in Hong Kong, Canada, uh, and Singapore, and Vietnam, I think. But again, it, it was an awful lot easier to control, as it turned out, than the coronavirus we're coping with at the moment. Um, I think there were things about it. For, for one thing, it, everybody it infected came down with a clinical disease. So there was no subclinical infection of people walking around infecting others. Secondly, it wasn't infectious until the symptoms developed. So again, there wasn't the opportunity for the virus to infect other people while the person carrying it was still well. And the third thing was that it, it traveled through coughs and sneezes and mucus droplets like the present virus, but the droplets were heavy and therefore didn't travel far from the individual and tended to infect, therefore tended to infect family members and medical staff who were close to the patient. So once all those things were appreciated, it became, I won't say easy, but, you know, quite clear um, how to respond to this. And quarantine was um, put in place and uh, it, it was actually a success story. I mean, I think there were 8,000 cases and 800 deaths, which 
sounded a lot at the time, but compared with what we're suffering now, that is um, not so much, I guess. And and to that, when when we're talking about some of these diseases that we've had sort of these close calls with, right, where we've had the SARS virus uh, in the early 2000s, um, the Ebola outbreak, which uh, you've written a book on Ebola. Do we have such a, a reliance on our public health systems to stop this that we almost don't believe that they're dangerous because we've had SARS, we've had Ebola. They said they were going to be terrible diseases, but they didn't really turn out to turn into the huge pandemics that were predicted. I, I think it's definitely true in the West that we somehow feel that it's not going to happen to us, you know. And sure enough, uh, neither Ebola, well, Ebola did um, travel to the UK and to the United States, I think, but it never, it didn't spread there. So I think, you know, we have this feeling that it's just not going to happen to us. And uh, that wasn't true in the countries that suffered from SARS, the, the first SARS. So the countries um, surrounding China, Vietnam and uh, Singapore, Hong Kong, they were much better prepared for, for this uh, present pandemic than the rest of us. And I think the reason is that they did suffer that one in 2003 and they knew what they were up against. You know, we were lucky with that one, if you like. But this one is, is a lot more, although it doesn't have such a high death rate, 10 percent for SARS-1. And this one is less. But of course, it, it spreads much more easily. So, yes, and I also think it's the problem with our governments, which are fairly short term. So here in the UK, we have a five year term. And to be honest, governments only seem to be interested in what they need to do within that five years to um, get reelected at the end of it. So I think pandemic planning is always put on the back burner. And, um, you know, here in the UK, they even had a, a trial run of a pandemic uh, a few years ago and knew what they needed to do, but never actually did it. So, you know, however much people like me, epidemiologists and virologists say we must be prepared, it, it, never, be, it never comes top of the list of a spending spree, you know. So when we go back into history uh, and get the historical context here, do, what do you see in today's pandemic response that has those echoes through history? Or is this a completely different animal, so to speak? Well, I think it's a completely different ballpark, certainly, because, you know, the, there are, I mean, our population is so enormous and we live, um, you know, so closely crowded together that really we're asking for it in a way. Um, and, you know, I, obviously the 1918 flu pandemic was worse than this or, you know, at this stage we're at now. Um, and it came totally out of the blue at the end of the war, infected young people you know, and, and really was a complete and utter bombshell. Now, that hasn't happened since, and it hadn't happened for a long time before. The reason being that, that um, once these infectious agents had settled into what I was describing as sort of circulating around and coming back every couple of years, when there were enough young children born to be susceptible, they would come back again and then sweep around, disappear for a couple of years, come back. You know, that's when nobody's immune, it's a completely different situation, you know, and um, the 1918 flu was killing off young people, you know, which is again a different situation from what we have now. It was incredibly um, destructive in the point of view of, you know, the economy as, as well as personal tragedies. Now, this one is targeting elderly people, which is different again, 
and needs obviously to be uh, reckoned with. But it is, but you know, I, I think if it comes around again, then it wouldn't be like that. Maybe younger people would be more susceptible. Who knows? We, you know, we, we really, it's very difficult to predict, to be honest. Let's talk about the role of, I guess, just the human psychological response to pandemics. Um, it seems to me, you know, certainly we hear a lot about fake news and, you know, how social media sort of propagates story after story. But this is not new. We've we've seen you know a, a result to a resort to conspiracy theory throughout history. How has that gone in previous pandemics? Um, it's to be honest, it's not often recorded. Although it is true that um, there, in the past, they've been put down to you know a, a displeased god or or something like that. In fact, in India, they they have a god specifically for smallpox. Um, who they had to appease if smallpox came around. So there's that side of it. There's also the fact that, you know, there were all sorts of, there was all sorts of quackery going on. So people relied on herbal remedies and, um, you know, doctors actually knew nothing and could do nothing. But even so, um, they managed to charge, charge fees for whatever they did do. Um, and of course, that's all changed. As I said, you know, the first thing was vaccines, which was absolutely, you know, perhaps the most amazing invention um, in the whole of history to actually to be able to stop these things or prevent them. That's what it does. It prevents uh, these infectious diseases must have been absolutely amazing at the time. And um, I know that in Jenna's time, the church uh, on the whole were very much against such a thing because they thought it was going against God's will to prevent a, a pandemic or an epidemic. And then, as I say, of course, um, the discovery of antibiotics has really meant that we can treat the bacterial infections if they come along, but we still don't have such a thing for viruses. So um, most of the pandemics these days are therefore viruses because we don't have uh, the equipment to stop them just like that. And throughout history, one thing I thought was really great about Deadly Companions is this context of history, which people who know me know that I love putting things in context. Tell us about some of these areas uh, where pan some of these areas in history where pandemics changed history. You mentioned smallpox, and of course, uh, you go into some detail in your book about uh, European contact in the Americas and how that. Uh, affected the labor within the continents. Uh, talk about that just a little bit as we wrap up. Well, that, uh, like you, I think that is the most incredible example of, of just how potent these agents are. Because, um, uh, as we all know, Columbus traveled from Europe to America, uh, landed in Hispaniola, and uh, was followed uh, within a fairly short time by many Europeans traveling to the Americas to exploit basically the sugarcane growing and the cheap labor. And unfortunately, they carried with them all these uh, so-called crowd diseases, which they'd been suffering from for decades, well, centuries, that they had developed genetic uh, resistance to. Um, and therefore, you know, they become milder for the Europeans or that, and they didn't generally die of them. But when all these infectious diseases, smallpox, measles, whooping cough, you name it, 
all poured into the Americas, that was an absolutely devastating effect. Um, I believe that the population dropped by about 90% within 100 years. So literally 10% left. Um, it also, uh, smallpox um, was uh, partly responsible anyway for the defeat of the Aztecs and the Incas because um, they got the disease and uh, not only were dying of it, but were completely disorientated and unable uh, to explain what, what on earth this was and what was going on. Um, so, you know, in my opinion, that, that really was a historical event caused or at least aided very much by microbes, which nobody knew about in those days, obviously. And I think it, it um, preempted the slave trade because they, the Europeans thought they were going to the Americas to grow sugarcane and other things and to have cheap labor. But of course, uh, the population of Hispaniola at least was completely wiped out. And therefore, the next thing was to go and um, bring in cheap labor from other countries. And hence, you know, the whole slave trade, which also brought other diseases over to the Americas. So, okay, you don't read about this in the history books, but I, you know, I hope I've convinced people in Deadly Companions how important these microbes actually are. What about, uh, you, you go into some detail about smallpox too, and how it even affected royal families and, uh, I mean, really the world over. So really the political decision-making process could have been changed by pandemics as well. Uh, that's true, yes. Smallpox uh, certainly didn't differentiate between the rich and the poor. And, um, I mean, the English royal family in Henry VIII's day used to go on what they called the progress in the summer. They would leave London knowing that um, smallpox and, and other infectious diseases were coming, sort of do a big, a grand tour of all the uh, large mansions and, um, you know, castles in in the UK, avoiding cities during that period. So they, they sort of knew how to avoid it, but um, they didn't always succeed. So I think the example I use is the Stuarts in British history, um, which was completely wiped out uh, by smallpox in the end, with one generation after another um, getting it and the heir dying of it. And uh, it also happened in other places, the Swedish royal family, and uh, yeah, all over the place, as were the general population. Uh, by smallpox, until, of course, Jenner produced his, his vaccine. So, as I say, that is one of the landmarks um, in infectious disease history. Well, it is a fascinating topic. I really appreciate the research that you did on this to give us this historical context. So, uh, to our listeners, pick up the book, Deadly Companions, How Microbes Have Shaped Our History. Uh, Professor Crawford also has another book, uh, which is Ebola, Profile of a Killer Virus. She's written numerous articles. There's a couple of other uh, books out there as well. But this has, I think, been a fascinating discussion, and I really appreciate that you're out there giving this historical context to this. Well, thank you very much. I've enjoyed it.